Welcome to the C Word, the Conservatives podcast. Today we're talking about visible storage. I'm Jenny Mathiason, an objects conservative based in South Yorkshire. I'm Chloe Rumsey, an objects conservative based in Greater Manchester. And I'm Christina Rizek, an objects conservative based in Cambridgeshire. Let's perhaps start with some news, if anyone has some news. Um, I was going to point out that in the latest issue of Museums Journal, which is the March issue, uh, there was a nice article about the National Trust Scotland um, doing some conservation work. And I'm I'm just pleased to see that there was any mention of conservation in Museums Journal, <laughs> which is uh, kind of harsh, but uh, I like that they're saying it. And uh, I wish them good luck with that project. Um, because, yeah, it's kind of a massive project. They're basically doing an inventory of their entire collection, um, over 20 months so they're going to recruit loads of project conservators and uh, basically blitz through their entire collection take good photos and try to make it more accessible for people you know online and stuff so uh, that sounds like a really good project good luck guys good bit of news very positive oh i am thinking of uh, two exhibitions that have opened up recently opened up uh opened, opened. Yeah, there yeah. <laughs> um there is the spark of life Oh, um, oh, is that the electricity, electricity one? spark of life? Yes, and welcome. Oh, yes, that does sound um, exciting. Which looks brilliant. Mm. Um, for all just the photos, some exhibitions here, people. We're not involved, by the way. Uh, we yeah, we no, just want I'd... to talk about them. There we go. I didn't get to go. Uh, <laughs> I haven't been to London for ages, which is why I will go. It's so awful, so don't go. <laughs> <laughs> electricity spark of life sounds excellent. Yes, yeah, yeah, and also in uh, science museum there is so both London. This robots. Yes. Oh, yeah, robots. <laughs> I was going to mention that. It looks so cool. It does look so cool. Everyone's talking about the swan. Like, everyone is. I'm really excited by the look of the the weird anatomic baby thing. It oh, looks yeah. sort of creepy and amazing and really, yeah. really cool. It does look very cool. I'm, yeah. I'm kind of dying to go. Yeah, okay, yeah. good stuff. I like it. Uh, there was also an article in the Museum's Journal about the... Well, it was more of a... Um, news analysis i suppose uh, about the upcoming review of the museum accreditation scheme uh, which is happening now so um basically the article outlined that uh, people struggle with accreditation at the moment i don't mean conservator accreditation i mean um a museum accreditation and the struggle is that it's difficult to uh, get through the process and to meet the standards in difficult times and that sort of thing and uh, actually the, got me slightly annoyed this article but only because i felt like the general tone of it seemed to be let's make it easier to become accredited as a museum and actually i think let's not lower the standards the standards are what they are for a reason in some ways so i got quite grumpy with it but then i am quite grumpy <laughs> for some things for some things but i mean i'm, I'm not uh, at all adverse to them making it a more streamlined process or uh, making the language of it less bureaucratic that's all fine it's good if people can understand what what they need to do and why um that's grand uh i was just slightly annoyed by this undertone of oh but not everyone gets to be accredited no that's the point you have to work for it <laughs> yeah that's why there's a test yeah i kind of slightly felt like no not everyone gets a gold star because the idea is that you have to meet certain standards. Um, but then I am, as previously stated, a grumpy sod. <laughs> it's an interesting conversation, isn't it? That well, it's. I think I was more worried that if we suddenly 
say that oh it's tough times so let's not do adequate storage anymore yeah. uh, as you know an, an accreditation it won't thing. Our accreditation <laughs> yeah then yeah i think that's a problem so i think we need to go we still need to have high standards as museums regardless of the fact that you know times are tough uh, it's not an optional thing to look after your collection that is what you do um but you know it might be that the roots there can be different uh, but it's yeah i i guess I'm fearful that now we're going to go, ah, you know, it's fine if you just put up a sign that says museum, you're all right. <laughs> yeah. Which is not where I want us to go. <laughs> yeah, let's not change best practice just because best practice is difficult to achieve sometimes. Yeah, yeah but even basic practice, you yeah. know, it's like, no, some standards need to be met. But then I am grumpy. But hopefully loads of really intelligent people will look at this and come up with sensible solutions. And fortunately, that's not my job. <laughs> Anyway, I think that's all I had for news. Um, I have a piece of news, uh, which is that Icon is consulting on its draft strategy for 2017 to uh, 2021. Uh, so they've already asked uh, Icon members for their input into the forthcoming Icon strategy. And they've now put a draft strategy online. They've highlighted three themes that they think are going to be particularly important to ICON over the next four or five years. Um, and so they say our mission is to support advocacy through influencing our partners and our public. Um, it's to support excellence through building knowledge, high standards and valuing the profession. And it's also to support engagement through encouraging public awareness and participation. So these three areas, um, advocacy, excellence and engagement are really the three um, sort of strands that ICON wants to focus on over the next few years and uh, where they really feel that their uh, efforts are going to lie. Well, let's move on to our topic for the day, which is visible storage. Oh, yes. Uh, Wikipedia does define this as, um, well, basically they say, vi visible storage is a method of maximizing public access to museum and art collections that would otherwise be hidden from public view. Visual storage cases tend to be densely packed and with less explanatory material than conventional displays. Uh, it also claims that this... Uh, originally started in the 1970s to 80s in North America um, as, you know, th that is the origins of visual storage. Um, now, I originally wanted to talk about this because uh, I noticed it more and more in articles and blog posts and uh, social media for museums a couple of years ago that it started to be a thing over here as well. And I was really fascinated by this because everyone seemed quite keen to join in, um, you know, because, you know, there are obvious benefits of increasing access. Um, so uh, that's kind of what led, led me into this topic, really. And uh, I found some excellent articles which uh, do illustrate the benefits quite well, which says... Um, Visitors have described visible storage as providing a treasure box feeling, enabling them to find hidden objects and make connections without much guidance. And uh, another author described it as cabinets of curiosity, which is, of course, something we've moved away slightly from as museums. Mm. Um, but these are interesting types of interactions where people 
may actually want less interpretation sometimes and just want to marvel at something. And that's, of course, something that we do all of the time. And some, well, I say that as someone who's a, quite a new conservator in a job. So I go into the, I go into the store and go, oh, this is amazing because I don't know my objects yet. <laughs> as if you can ever know, you know, millions of objects. <laughs> but um, I'm, I'm still at the amazement phase of my job where I think everything is marvellous. Visible storage is a way of sharing that with the wider public, that amazement, the slightly special feeling of rooting through storage. <laughs> yeah, I think the rooting through storage is a, is a really good phrase because um, in my research, I've identified, well, I have a number of really nice examples of different kinds of visible storage um so we've got national railway museum uh, museum of science and industry national museum of scotland uh, the vna and uh, as an overseas example key Branley museum in paris um a couple of these which ones yes yeah, so a couple of these uh, national railway museum and the museum of science and industry they're very much um a sort of view into existing storage. So it's more like as museums and conservation people, we would understand storage. So everything's quite crammed together. Things are in boxes. And it's a little bit more of a jumble and a bit more sort of the focus is on object stability and safety and longevity. Um, but it does lead to, I suppose, a slightly less kind of, I guess, slightly less visibility and slightly less organization, slightly less clear of individual objects. Um, and then and the other type of visible storage I would identify would be the National Museum of Scotland, VNA and the Key Bronley. Um, they are more, I'd say, storage display. Mm -hmm. So they've kind of bridged the gap between storage and display. So it's basically, they're basically more like just crammed display. Mm. Essentially, they're in glass cases. They're beautifully mounted. They are um, just essentially a bit more squished together mm. and you can walk around them. Not It's not been sort of meticulously curated and there's no sort of storyline. It's just, this is the stuff that we have. Um, but not really, I suppose, in a storage setting. Um, the Key Bronley Museum particularly, um, they have, I don't, uh, it won't be all of their collections, but they have a vast number of collections in a sort of spherical centre to their museum. It's glazed and you've got all the beautiful racks in it. So it's an anthropological museum, of course. So it's... Uh, quite wonderful with all of the spears and things attached mm. to the racking that I remember using in various anthropological museums that I won't mm. name um and it's so yeah there's it's like a sort of pretend display um which is really nice but very distinct to the visible real display that we would see mm. And I'd be interested to know what people, different people's views on each of those things and how they affect 
how people see museums and how museums are seen to be operating. Mm. That's interesting because um, there there was a conversation about this on the conservation disc list in early last year, January, February. Uh, there were only about three responses, uh, but you know it was still the start of a conversation where people were considering, in conservation terms, what does it mean to um, have visible storage? Is it a good option, etc.? And it, it, you know, they identified some fairly basic things like light exposure will be greater um, in a visible storage, um, you know, situation. Obviously, because it's visible. <laughs> um, so you know, unless things are in boxes um, or or very hidden away in racks or otherwise wrapped, uh, they will get a lot of light exposure, and that's something worth considering when you're choosing whether or not not to go down the route of visible storage. There are also things like uh, space issues, whilst uh, you can get away with having quite a lot of objects in a small area, you're still never going to use that space as effectively as in a, a backroom kind of storage mm. area where you can, you know, properly box things up and put loads of things in the same box and stack those boxes on top of each other. You know, you're, you're never going to do that in visible storage, or at least not normally. Um, unless that's part of the aesthetic that you're going for, but then you're really having people look at boxes, so uh, which tends to be less exciting. Um, so there, there's a space issue of it takes more space than traditional storage that does, which is obviously uh, a real problem. And I'm kind of wondering if this is why this started in Nor North America, where space is at less of a premium unless you're in a big city. Um, obviously, in a big city, you you are confined. But if it's a, say, newly built museum and it's somewhere um, with a lot of open space and grounds around it, you can always expand, build a bit, build a bit larger and, you know, take that into account. As for I feel like here over here in Britain, space is at a severe premium. We don't have enough space to, you know, store our stuff normally, let alone um, make it all nice and spaced out mm. and uh, lovely. It happens, of course, which uh, is lovely. Um, but and I'm, quite a lot of our stores are off-site as well, so we'd, we'd need to sort problem, of yeah. specifically select the, mu the the collections that we wanted to bring out of off-site storage and to put them onto yeah. on-site. I mean, unless you, unless you go down the route of doing more like tours, uh, where you actually basically yeah. ship people out to your off-site store. I've seen that happen as well, um, where where you uh, get to go on a on a special tour every now and then to the off-site store. But then is that is that just is that open day store yeah, so storage or is that visible storage? Yeah, exactly. That's uh, it does depend on the type of collection because sometimes it's it can be things like um, I'm thinking of the Fleet Air Art Museum where we once went out to their store and quite a lot of their stuff because it's you know planes tends to be <laughs> what what we would probably probably call uh, op open storage or Not visible storage. Then. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So you know it's it's all it's all very nice and visual anyway. <laughs> Um, but yeah, that's that's kind of a grey area there. Uh, obviously, you have to take things like condition of the objects uh, into um, into account when you're choosing things for visible display, uh, for visible storage even. Um, but then we do that anyway, don't we? Yeah, I suppose there's there's an interesting point there that you've always. Well, part of me wonders how much of this has been driven by you know the. The what do you mean you've got two hundred thousand museum objects that you're not displaying? Why aren't you displaying? It's a disgrace. 
how much of this is being driven by that sort of mentality and then all well, as conservators we sort of have to accept each time something goes on display that a small amount of damage is likely to occur or that we are just by the nature of putting on display increases the, increasing the chances of damage mm. so in order to basically <clears throat> increase the numbers of objects to which you are increasing the danger of damage yeah. is a particular I mean, even even if we don't put in light damage into that mixing bowl, there's always, you know, knocking into cases and, you know, even theft and yeah, quite so water damage and everything. Basically, visible storage has to be risk assessed just like anything else. Um, also, uh, something that I've asked around amongst friends, like, um, what their concerns would be, like, would your museum? wherever you work now, uh, consider doing visible storage. And the overwhelming response has been probably not because of security issues, where it's like we don't really want people to see all these marvellous things that we have, that we have because what if they want them? <laughs> which is, a, which is um, I suppose, a natural response. Um, but at the same time, I find it a little bit unfortunate because it's like, oh, so you just want to hide them instead. That's kind of sad in a way. And But... I mean, theft is, of course, uh, um, of course, a worry. It's a worry for all museums all the time. But uh, depending on how your visible storage is set up, you should be able to mitigate that. And at any point, I would assume that, you know, you would have security measures in place so that people can't just go, oh, I think I'll take that with me, because that's not how <laughs> museums work. It's interesting you've both mentioned how people, um, the, the sort of public uh sort of impetus if you like for museums to um introduce visible storage uh, because this was quite a big thing in the um 1990s in the uk mm -hmm. um and uh there, there were several very um derogatory possibly inflammatory newspaper articles at one point um about the number of uh, the, the museums that had a very small proportion of their collections on display um, and there were articles saying, you know, such and such museum only has 5% of its collection on permanent collection on public display at any one time. Mm. I mean, for a start, different collections and different types of institutions have hugely varying um, sizes of collection as well. So some of that national gallery that probably has, I don't know, maybe a thousand paintings comes out of this really well um, because they have a very high proportion of those on display at any one time whereas somewhere like the natural history museum which has 80 million specimens and can't <laughs> yeah. possibly put them all in their galleries at any one point even if anybody really wanted to see every type of beetle um, yeah. <laughs> uh, they tend to come out of these things really badly and mm. of course the uk press being what it is this got portrayed as museums somehow hiding away priceless treasures i remember it that article it, it yeah it made me angry it wasn't sort of um I mean, maybe a more fair assessment would be, you know, that we have to keep this stuff for various reasons, for research purposes, to ensure that it's preserved for future generations or whatever. Actually, people don't necessarily want to see all of this stuff, um, particularly where you're talking about <laughs> natural history museums and you're looking at type specimens a lot of the time and then sort of multiple, uh, you know, multiple, not versions, but, you know, multiple instances if you like of the same specimen mm -hmm. and this isn't stuff that you would put on public display but somehow museums got portrayed as as secretive and hiding this stuff away um so 
I think some to some extent it's it's part of sort of being seen to be more open and mm. and not looking as if we're deliberately hoarding all this stuff. But the the other side of that, I wonder, is that it, I wonder if it kind of makes us vulnerable, likewise, because. Um, I mean, you both work in museums, as I have done as well. And you know that how, um, museum stores are often a bit haphazard. Um, they're not always, uh, the, the objects in them aren't always stored to the absolute highest standards that they could be often for a lack of money, a lack of time. There isn't anybody to yeah. carefully cut out loads of lovely plasterzote supports for things and so on, or maybe objects have been in very old boxes for a long time and museums just haven't had time to rebox them and so on. And I think it could be a, quite scary for institutions to kind of lay this stuff all open mm. to the public and I agree. have some, frankly, substandard practice um, available for criticism. And I wonder if we're, we're kind of a bit vulnerable in that way as well. Uh, open storage is fine if you're starting from scratch and you're sort of getting your collection into great condition at the mm. same time as you're doing it. But if it's um, if you don't have a way of doing that, then um, yeah, then so, I think that could be quite a concern for museums. In, in a lot of ways, I feel like the big museums kind of have have to lead the way on this because they get the funding, if you see what I mean, to have brilliant storage facilities and actually upgrade them and they have the staff mm. for them. So I th think this is a real problem for smaller museums. Whereas they can't join in here because... They would have to show the things are stored in shoeboxes or yeah. any old <laughs> any old container that they could find, including you know ice cream tubs. You know, it's that <laughs> kind of yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, where, where on some level that can be quaint, and actually, I think someone somewhere once did an exhibition on old packaging material from the museum, which was lovely, uh, which included things like you know, uh, you know, various kinds of weird tins and anything that they could uh, find to put something in as they transported it, and then it ended up being there, uh, the permanent kind of oh wow museum container until upgrades were done a century later, um, which was quite lovely. But you know, it, it's that kind of level of thing where. I can see why most people would not want to embarrass themselves and show show that show that they're not yet up to spec, or that um, you know they there are there are some things still to be sorted out, or, or that the objects themselves are not in great condition actually. Because I said that um, that there'd been this big sort of focus on storage um, and on. Um, how small a proportion of collections are on display um, in the 1990s. Mm. And that kind of led um, directly, actually, to the sort of growth of collection condition surveys as mm. a conservation, uh, preventive conservation tool or collection care tool. Yeah. Um, and it, it was partly because um, that the museums were sort of realised, actually, you know, we have all this stuff, we don't necessarily know how many objects we've got, we certainly don't know what condition they're in yeah. um, and we don't know how long it would take to get them into better condition to keep them stable to preserve them in the long term and so on so really that, that's kind of led to the um, birth of condition surveys as, as a kind of regular tool but what a lot of museums found of course is that it would take um, I think several I think some, uh, some of them that published their results found that it would take you know a couple of hundred years of conservator time <laughs> to remedy the 
<laughs> to, to, to do the necessary conservation work that they found from doing condition surveys and so on. And so, you know, do you want to put these objects out there? Do you want to make them visible when there are bits dropping off them, when they're crumbling, when you've got active bronze disease or moldy boots or whatever? Well, this is interesting because uh, it kind of reminds me of something you brought up earlier. Do you even want people to see these? Which is the uh, aspect of public appeal, because something that was raised on the disc list was certainly... Um, uh, or certainly appeal of objects where not everything we have is pretty and whilst it can be fascinating to see that uh, someone has collected every kind of tin opener that there has ever been and then donated it to a museum that can be fascinating in that it is a cabinet of curiosity kind of level of weird thing to have which is lovely but most of the time I kind of feel like uh, especially archaeological collections, where that with all various bits of brown pot, and it's uh, <laughs> all of these rocks, own, yes, slightly different, <laughs> yeah, loads and loads of pieces of mas- masonry without any context. It's um, it has a very limited appeal. It's different in a place like the V&A, where they can put their amazing ceramics mm. uh, just mm. on nice shelves and go, "This is visible storage," which it is. And that looks uh, presumably amazing. I've seen photos. I've not seen it myself. Um, but their boxes and boxes and boxes of small brown pots are not part of no, that display. No, quite. No, quite. <laughs> because that's not interesting. So, yeah. again, it's it's almost like... Um, I've always liked that Flickr, the photo uploading uh, service, has a way of sorting things. You can sort things by relevance, date taken, um, and then you can also sort them by interestingness. And I kind of, I love that I love that that's a parameter. And I kind of feel like that's what museums who do visible storage need to do. They need to internally sort all of their things in terms of interestingness and only put the really interesting stuff out there. Well, I suppose everything's interesting with the context. Yeah. Which is why the conventional exhibition with its little yeah. plaque of interpretation f- of this is why you should be interested in this, guys, Yeah, is sort of vital in quite a lot of the stuff. Yeah. Unless it's the kind of aesthetically beautiful. Yeah. Or and someone has to love the... <laughs> someone has to love the unappealing objects as well oh yeah it's no, kind that's, of like that's you know, true you, like like when there are adverts trying to get you to adopt dogs and so on and and you know that the one with its torn ear and it's oh, been beaten up and so on and one. nobody wants that dog yes but the, actually the british library has the british library has a scheme called adopt a book oh, oh i love I that, love that. where you can pay 25 pounds i love that that's great but but you see what they do of course is they, you can choose from a range of well-loved titles like Jane Eyre and right. Little Women and Wizard of Oz and whatnot. So it's never going to be that one book that that unknown guy wrote and that they have, you know, like the yeah. really moth-eaten one. <laughs> yeah. So I feel oh. sorry for those objects. Yeah. yeah. But in, interesting scheme and interesting way to gain more public support, of course. But yeah, that's, that's oh, kind of love it. That's great. Um, I have yeah. a note about... Um, the I suppose the cyber alternative to visible storage mm. um, that I think is actually relevant to quite a lot of the things we've been saying about museum size and funding and particularly um, quality of storage mm. is the um, open database online collections movement, mm. which I think is is more actually a it's a more modern movement than visible storage. 
Um, and I suppose it might be a sort of answer to people not having the physical space mm. to show people these collections. Um, of essentially just getting the, the getting their databases and putting them online for public ser- um, searching and, you know, generally, yeah. you know, having a look at what each museum has got. Um, and when you were talking about the quality of storage and the you know whether it's actually up to scratch and whether you you don't really want to make it visible actually um that i think this is the case for quite a lot of um well museums that say okay our project is to get our our collections online oh actually quite a lot of these database entries are just you know a bad photo of a number of pots and and pot. one line of text yeah <laughs> pot circa you know whatever century yes. and that's not really you know it might be very interesting to somebody who is doing a typological assessment of a certain type of and can identify this particular type of pot from the others but it, there's a vast amount of i mean it might not be 200 years work but it's a vast amount of work to simply go through everything and make get, sure get there's online, proper yeah. photos of everything get it online with proper descriptions and you and know that's why the national trust scotland is doing a really big project on it yeah, for example exactly yeah exactly um and it's it might seem like an easy way out to say well we'll get it online it's fine we don't need to find out find the physical space but um all right let's give me just i don't know 52 weeks <laughs> Well, t- two thoughts relating to that. Uh, first of all, I kind of hope that's a good venue for crowdsourcing information because you'd be surprised what uh, people will tell you. I mean, I found this at a museum I worked at previously where visitors would come up to you and say, I've noticed an error in one of your labels because I yeah. used to work with X and that meant that I dealt a lot with this type of object. And actually what you've got there is this and not this. And um, I loved... I loved information like that when someone would come up and actually correct us and, you know, be like, you didn't know what you were saying there, but I know, I know, and I can tell mm. you and you can, you can make it better. Almost so, oral histories in a yeah. way. So, I mean, I hope that there's, there's a scope for people to maybe put their crappy um, <laughs> databases online and then have people actually help them, you know, where it's a case of, you know, because sometimes you know, you just need an agricultural expert, but you know, you've grown up in cities all your life, and you know, you don't you don't know what these objects are actually called because you're a curator of a massive collection, mm. and agricultural studies was not part of your background, for example. Um, so I'm kind of hoping there's a scope there for a bit of crowdsourcing of information, so that museums can t- take it on board and say, "Hey, amazing! Today, some people told us what these objects are. Let's update our records." Um, I'm kind of hopeful that that can be a, one of the futures. And second uh, interesting thought, well, ugh, I think it's interesting, um, uh, related to that is there was recently an article on Museum Hack about museums using Pinterest to get their collections online because online databases are expensive, but Pinterest is free. Um, so uh, as a, as a way of widening access and getting people to engage, they've uh, some museums have been putting part of their collection or indeed entire collections on Pinterest with, you know, a bit of information and the image 
uh, for people to share and enjoy in any shape, way, or form they want. And I just thought it was kind of an interesting tack to take. Modern techniques and yeah. resources, yeah. Although, Although when I-, I shared that, uh, one of my friends got incredibly angry and said, uh, you shouldn't use Pinterest because Pinterest requires you to sign up to uh, view any mm. of their images. Um, and I said, that's a fair point, although it is free to sign up. So I kind of feel like you're still widening access, regardless of the fact that you have to register an account. But you know. I think I'd also worry about um, uh, putting that amount of work into something that's essentially a third party This is also true. Uh, platform. Uh, which it could, could be disappear at any point, of course. At any time, and it could. Uh, they could suddenly decide. Uh, they could suddenly decide to start charging for access and so on. So, uh, and I would also want to know who owns the images that yes, I put up there. That's a whole other barrel of fish. Well. So, but it's still a great idea. Yeah, but yeah. So, um, yeah, um, I was going to ask you if you had seen any good examples of visible storage. Uh, anywhere anywhere around the world i have two the ones that i've two i've already mentioned um one is the key Bronley mm. because it's just beautiful and it has you know swoon low lighting level swoon and <laughs> you know it's just it's really it's just really really sensitively done um and given a lot of i mean it's ethno collections so i would i know the pit rivers i think as a museum bridges the um the the display and storage display um thing because they they have the cabinet of curiosities aesthetic going and that's mm. that's what they are that's who that's who they are and this does it in such a different way but still still manages to be sort of ultra sensitive to the collections and mm. any particularly culturally sensitive collection or item that they have. Um, so that's that's one of my sort of super favourites. Um, the other, I think, Museum of Science and Industry, they have a, um, a welcome area in their collection centre area. And there's big windows into one of their stores, their most... Um, various various stores jumbly stores um a what's the word a misc thank you yeah. yeah it's a misc store um so there's music sort of portal like windows into that store um and also rolling display cabinets that are i will note not you can't roll them because that would be dangerous but they are sort of in the manner of display, in the sorry, in the manner of storage, but windowed for display. Mm. And I find that is really, really nice. I think it's just a sort of it's everyone, you know, if you see people there, they they run around and they're all excited, like they're they're opening the drawers and they're <laughs> they're f- discovering things. And I just I really like that. I think it's really nice. So they're my two examples. That reminds me. Um... There was a blog post on Collections Conversations, which uh, kind of summarised the Conservation Dis- List um, discussion. And it also added in the fact that it's very costly for museums to do visible storage because it does need to be nice, uh, which <laughs> yes. can be challenging. And um, But it did bring up that uh, a more cost-effective way 
to do visible storage might be to just have a window into a workroom or collections area where uh, people work on objects or uh, bring objects through or similar. And that's something I've experienced in a previous workplace where there was a viewing window into the workroom where um, basically all my work took place. And there were always loads of interesting objects in there. So it was, uh, you, it was clearly a delight to visitors to always uh, look in and see something new or weird or a person poking at something or taking something <laughs> apart and, uh, or fixing something or, you know, photographing it or whatever. They were constantly amazed, which was lovely and I loved it. But it was also of course, quite stressful because you are then part of the display in some way. Where <laughs> like it, an open chef's kitchen. Yes, where it becomes a thing me. of, oh, look, it's a conservator. <laughs> Point at him. And uh, suddenly it becomes incredibly stressful. Um, you, you get used to it over time. And I would totally do it again. That's the thing, right? I, it, uh, it, it became habit where it was fine to look over and see 20 school children pressed against the glass, really excitedly <laughs> staring at you, just as it was fine to look over and see one really sinister looking man staring at you silently for like a good half hour. Uh, you know, it really varied the kind of people who would come and look at you. But uh, it was always nice to see that people were kind of curious. And it did provide that bit of extra value. I, I, I just wondered if, well, if, if the lack of privacy bothered you if you felt a bit like a kind of zoo animal because i think i think it feels a bit kind of voyeuristic as well if if they're kind of peering at you through a little window but there's no way of actually interacting with I, you. But I, I, did, also I did feel that way yeah a little bit if, if if you found that there were parts of your work that actually you'd rather weren't on public display yes uh, so yes to both of those things um i did feel like a monkey at a zoo at least the first few months and then that feeling kind of went away and there were definitely things that I would do before opening hours so that they would not be there because it was an extra stress element. And, you know, even the best laid plans, something will sometimes fall apart in your hands, even as you were trying to fix it. And that is not something you want someone to witness necessarily. Um, <laughs> so, um, yeah, there were definitely things that I would sometimes do behind another object or in other ways, I am working on an object and it's fine, but I need a bit of privacy for this. So you can stare at my intent face all you want, but you're not seeing the actual work because sometimes that actually added a lot of pressure. That being said, I would totally do it again. And I would totally do um, open display conservation. I would totally do it uh, as a way of engaging with people. I would do that. That's fine. I, I would be quite keen actually. Yeah. I'm a big fan of, as you say, open display conservation. I think it's really it's really nice, and I think people are generally visitors are generally more interested in the conservation behind the scenes element of it than we're given credit for. I think, but I have worked in situations like you know windowed situations, like say recently, um, and on one occasion I was essentially clearing up quite a well, quite a big mercury spill, not that Ooh, big really, yeah. but I was dealing with, you know, uncontained mercury. Toxic stuff, And I, yeah, yeah, I, it was perfectly safe. I was following the procedures. I had my mercury spill kit and all my, you know, all my PPE and everything, but I did also have an audience and I thought, hmm, they're far away and behind glass, but I sort of wish they weren't there actually, because, mm, you yeah. know, yeah, the, they the, might not think, oh, she's doing something slightly hazardous, but, you there, know. There are times when I wish there was like a button for a blind to go down where it's like, okay, quiet time now. <laughs> I think 
actually that that would be a good way to deal with it so yeah. that the, the control is in the conservator's hands mm. um you know if, if you choose to draw the blind for mm. whatever reason then that's fine but so some examples of visible storage that i've seen i would include uh, the current archaeology gallery uh, museum of archaeology and anthropology because that is intended as visible storage in cambridge uh, yes so that's uh, they've got display cases upstairs in the archaeology gallery uh, with some things in boxes and uh, some things uh, just out on the shelves, but uh, quite densely packed, like you would expect from visible storage. And uh, it does have interpretation in terms of this is this is sometimes how things are, you know, kept in museums. There are loads of them. There's you know not necessarily numbers with them, or you know, or they're just in these kinds of boxes. But yeah, that, that's that's one example that sprang to mind. That. I, I, like I like that, that was kind I've of a, it, yeah. it, I like that it's a kind of a low key one, so it's not you know flashy and <laughs> look what you we're know, doing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but it's like hey, you know this this is how it is, and I just like it was. I found it informative and nice. Um, and another one is I recently went to London to uh, walk around various museums with a friend, and we went to the Natural History Museum. And as it turns out, their spirit specimens is essentially an open storage, by which I mean Ooh. it's you walk into this area where there's also a nice glass conservation lab on the other side. I was vaguely hoping I would see someone we know, uh, <laughs> but unfortunately I didn't. Um, but on the other side, there's this, there are these glass walls where you can see what feels like miles and miles of spirit specimens. It's all very you know nicely lit and uh, they are on shelves. It looks like a it looks like a store. It does. Like it, it, it looks just like I would expect spirit specimens to be stored, but it is visible through these uh, long windows, which is quite nice. So it's basically glass walls on one side. That's nice. I should go there. Yeah, I, I just liked it. It was, it was tasteful. Mm. And I found it was tasteful, which you know is, can be difficult to do with something that's quite gruesome because obviously spirit specimens... Oh, what they are. Gory. Yeah, and people yeah. do tend to go, oh. <laughs> That does actually bring to mind, actually, some things that can't easily be incorporated into physical storage. Mm. Um, and in another episode of this podcast, we're talking about human remains. Mm, yes. Um, and obviously, museums um, usually go to some lengths to store human remains very carefully, mm. um, whether they're sort of isolated and kept in a particular area often they're covered um and they're not not visible mm. in fact um the other thing that springs to mind is uh, radioactive or other hazardous objects um which i think would be probably difficult to put into an open open display scheme mm. yeah definitely um, just so i guess there are kind of limits to this you mm. know um i do have um some future movements or the the direction that maybe we will we will see um in the future we've sort of been talking about visible storage and its emergence i suppose in the 80s 90s and then the sort of rise of it in this country and i think most of the things that i saw when i was studying were as we were saying visible storage in the 90s and the early part of this century. Um, 
And I wonder where it's going now. Um, and I wonder this because I have heard of two institutions now that um, are contemplating removing their visible storage. Oh, so backtracking a bit. Yeah. Mm. So removing their visible storage and basically to make space for non-collections visitor spaces. Ah, okay. So so it becomes the thing of we need a we need a learning space so we, yeah, we need to chuck yeah, something learn, out. Yeah, exactly. Um Interesting. So I I hope that it's not a move away from mm. a sort of a more objects direction towards a less objects direction mm, interesting um I, i'll be interested to see where other you know i mean that is only it's only two institutions so it's mm. you know it's not a wide trend but i'd be interested to see where else we go with this in the future mm. well if if anyone has any more juicy gossip of that nature <laughs> then uh please do let us know we, we love comments we love questions <laughs> and we love corrections so the review for this episode is going to be my review on Artichek. Artichek is an Apple-based application designed for the management and creation of condition reports specific to objects and artworks. It's a really simple application. You, If you want a free trial of it, you go onto the Artichek website, artichek.co.uk, and then you're prompted to download the free version of it um, as an app from the iTunes shop, um, you're instantly from the homepage prompted to set up, set up an account. You sign, you sign in, then you meet a page saying, create your first report by tapping add report. It's a really clear, simple looking app. Um, you just, essentially you just follow the instructions. You follow them along the way. You choose the type of report. Um, they have basic standard and detailed options for the different type of report you want to do. There's only for some reason a detailed textile rather than a standard or basic textile report, but you know, I'm not sure why. You can choose different options to include in your report, like the exhibition name, lender details, which I thought was really interesting, um, handling display requirements, treatment proposals and quotes. I chose on my example, lender details and handling and display to see what kind of options will come up. From then, you, um, you're prompted to add information like dimensions, weight, um, including weight of stand or weight of crate, which is very thorough um, and leads you through considering the different types of information that you need to include in your report. Um, there's a good health and safety section. I'm very up on health and safety. So it's nice to see that that is considered and prompted towards. Um, from that point, you're prompted to add photos. You can add photos straight from the camera. So you can, if you're on your iPad, for example, you can just take a photo or you can download, you can upload a photo onto the app from your library. Just as a note, old iPads, the iPad I was using doesn't have a very good camera. Um, so if you were using it, it might be worth just using the ones from your library. Whilst in the photos section, um, you can annotate them. There's a, a really simple way of 
drawing sections around areas of damage, choosing types of damage, so insect damage or corrosion or dents. There's so many um, to to choose from. Um, You can add detailed shots of each section. So it can become a really, really complex web of of different bits of condition information. So it can be really, really thorough. Once you're back onto the homepage and you've created your report, um, there are options to add new checks. So if you're doing surveys or exhibitions, install and deinstall, you can do condition in and out, etc. Um, when you press download or finish report, it will automatically say, this will download when you have internet connection. Um, I have tried using it without an internet connection and it works fine as well, so you don't necessarily need one, which is really good. Once you've downloaded it, you can view it as a PDF um, and that automatically produces your contact details, the name of the object and all the other information you've um, included. You can add your own logo or museum logo or company name and signature as well. You can produce your own signature to have come automatically onto each of your reports. Um, They're easy to share by just sending an Artichek link to any email address or downloaded and printed. Um, These reports just come up with all of the photos automatically with all the notes you put on them, with all of the sort of legal signing bits and pieces that you could need in them. So overall, it's a really great app. Um, it's really well thought out. It's, it looks like it's been thought out by, um, a museum professional, um, who know, who knows what we need to know and who knows what we need to communicate and to be communicated. Um, there's a lot of, um, additional automatic things that is really useful. So you don't have to constantly write out the same thing over and over again or, um, sign the same thing over and over again if you're doing a huge bulk of reports. It works very well as a portable solution um, if you're working between sites or between museums that you are lending to or lending from. Um, It's very convenient. Again, it's really good that you can use it offline as well as online. Um, And as it's designed for iPad, you can use the camera feature if you spot any extra bits of damage. There doesn't seem to be any way to separately retrieve the information you've put in though, um, other than PDF. I think this is a bit of a downside because it means that you don't have any um, information you can interact with separately from the app. Um, That means that you can't send the information to someone Um, who isn't using the app or a company or museum that isn't using the app and then have them edit it. It's just PDF version, uh, just a PDF version, which I think seems really quite limiting to me. It's very obviously been designed with projects such as exhibitions in mind, um, particularly dealing with external parties and stakeholders or employers. And I first found out about this app from working with an art handling company, a private art handling company during it, during a private exhibition install. So from their point of view, it's a, I mean, it's perfectly designed for them. It gives you all the information you need. Um, for freelancing, particularly it's, it would be a perfect solution. And for my own freelance work, it's definitely something that I would consider using. 
There are several reasons why this might not fit into general everyday museum work, however. Um, again, with the no way to easily uh, retrieve information that you've added in, um, no way to access specific information or images from the app other than through PDF in the same way. Um, you can't take the images that you've used and then add them onto your specific museum database separately. It would just be, if you needed to include it in your database, you'd just have to upload the whole report um, as a document. You wouldn't also be able to link it with or include it with your additional object information. You'd have to include it as a separate report. You wouldn't be able to collate the, the whole information as one piece. Um, also a problem I thought of was... If you have your annotated image, that's great, but you still need to use it in conjunction with PDF or the app. There's no uploading that into your database with all of the linked images in place, which is, a, again, a shame because you've gone to all the work of selecting, drawing around the bits of damage. It's great for the specific purpose of an exhibition or a um, traveling exhibition particularly, but again, it's you know it, it might be not ideal for everyday museum use. In terms of the expense side of things, um, of course it does require an Apple iPad or iPhone. Um, if it's your phone, I imagine it's probably your personal phone because, or your personal iPad because we rarely get provided with these things. Looking at the quotes, it is quite expensive. Um, it's generally between 100 to 200 pounds per year. Um, and that comes with various combinations of the number of reports that you can produce per year or the number of users that can use the app per year on the account. I have heard that it can be quite expensive for um, whole departments to use as well um, with multiple users and with, I suppose, a more random set of numbers of reports that will be created so generally quite a lot as an alternative i've heard um people of people using evernote so this is another note-taking report making app um evernote is an android based one so it would be an a, an option for those using android i tried using that one as well it's not as streamlined um it's generally much less well explained, but it is a very flexible word processor, essentially. Um, it's a simple sheet. You can add things to it. You can add photographs to it, which you can annotate. I still haven't worked out how to change the size of the annotations, um, which seems like a quite a simple thing to not be able to do. So I'm sure you can do it. I just couldn't work out how to do it. You can add tick boxes, which is really good. Um... I wasn't sure about the formatting options. Again, I think this is something that either you'd need, either you'd need specific guidance on this, or you know, it it be sort of specifically set up for use for condition reporting in museums. Um, I have heard that it is a, it's a good option though, um, if you need a note taking piece of software for tablets to use in a, a very uh, flexible, fluid museum environment, but it wasn't as easily set up as Artichek, certainly. More flexible again, though, so possibly more well-suited to everyday museum 
duties, museum life rather than freelance work. I would like to know more about um, how to remove information from Evernote, um, how to send it and create sendable pages or sendable reports. Um, I couldn't find an easy way to do this without using an Evernote program. Um, I imagine this is just something that I need to look at more. But again, Artichek was a very, very easy option. So in comparison, Evernote is a bit problematic. Generally, I think that these apps are very, very useful tools. Um, it's a really interesting development in um, the modern technology that we have and how it can be used in the museum environment and the heritage environment. Something I don't know about, though, is, and I would be very eager to know about it, um, is the legality and policy compliance issues surrounding this in terms of third-party involvement. Where is the information being saved or shared to? Who has access to it? Um, is there any personally identifiable information involved? And what happens to the data when the use of the app is ended by the museum or the company? Is this information automatically deleted? What sort of data erasure will go on there? So generally, I would say it would be best to seek advice from your company or your museum whenever you want to start using a cloud application for this sort of thing. Um, a lot of the time we are strictly controlled by legality issues and policies and museums or companies. So it would be good to know exactly where you stand and what you can and can't do. I do imagine that this is all the stuff that has been considered um, by the app provider and developers, but it would be a good idea to seek the specific information um, of this for your particular case. Generally, though, I think this is a really useful tool um, and I'd be very much interested to see what other apps come out of this sort of technology use for museums. Right. Um, any comments, questions or corrections, as usual, we would love to hear from you. You can email us at um, thecwordpodcast at gmail.com, uh, tweet us or in, you know, in any way bother us. Please come bother us. We love being bothered. Thanks for listening with C-Word and you've been listening to Christina Rosaic, Chloe Rumsey and me, Jenny Mathiasen. You can check out our website at thecword.show, tweet us at thecwordpodcast or simply email us on thecwordpodcast at gmail.com. The intro and outro music is Spring by DD Mystic and used under a Creative Commons attribution license. This has been a Wooden Dice production.